Chapter Two, Part Three, Into Bondage, of In the Year of Jubilee by George Gissing. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two. From chambers in Staple Inn, Lionel Tarrant looked forth upon the laborious world with a dainty enjoyment of his own limitless leisure. The old gables running upon Holborn pleased his fancy. He liked to pass under the time-worn archway, and so, at a step, estrange himself from commercial tumult. To be in the midst of modern life, yet breathe an atmosphere of ancient repose. He belonged to an informal club of young men who called themselves facetiously the Hodiernals, Wixy Hodier. The motto, suggested by someone or other after a fifth tumbler of whiskey punch, might bear more than a single interpretation. Harvey Munden, the one member of this genial brotherhood, who lived by the sweat of his brow, proposed as a more suitable title, Les Fainéants. That, however, was judged pedantic, not to say offensive. For these sons of the day would not confess to indolence. Each deemed himself, after his own fashion, a pioneer in art, letters, civilization. They had money of their own, or were supported by someone who could afford that privilege. Most of them had, ostensibly, some profession in view. For the present they contented themselves with living, and the weaker brethren read in their oidianity an obligation to be up-to-date. Tarrant professed himself critical of to-day, apprehensive of to-morrow. He cast a backward eye. Nonetheless, his avowed principle was to savor the passing hour. When night grew mellow, and the god of whiskey inspired his soul, he shone in a lyrical egoism which had but slight correspondence with the sincerities of his solitude. His view of woman, the hoidiernals talked much of women, differed considerably from his thoughts of the individual women with whom he associated. Protesting Oriental sympathies, he nourished in truth the chivalry appropriate to his years and to his education, and imaged an ideal of female excellence, whereof the prime features were moral and intellectual. He had no money of his own. What could be saved for him from his father's squandered estate, the will established him sole inheritor, when in the costs of a liberal education, his grandmother giving him assurance that he should not go forth into the world penniless. This promise Mrs. Tarrant had kept, though not exactly in the manner her grandson desired. Instead of making him a fixed allowance, the old lady supplied him with funds at uncertain intervals, with the unpleasant result that it was sometimes necessary for him to call to her mind his dependent condition. The checks he received varied greatly in amount from handsome remittances of a hundred pounds or so, down to minim gifts, which made the young man feel uncomfortable when he received them. Still, he was provided for, and it could not be long before this dependency came to an end. He believed in his own abilities. Should it ever be needful, he could turn to journalism, for which, undoubtedly, he had some aptitude. But why do anything at all, in the sense of working for money? Every year he felt less disposed for that kind of exertion, and had a greater relish of his leisurely life. Mrs. Tarrant never rebuked him, 
Indeed, she had long since ceased to make inquiry about his professional views. Perhaps she felt it something of a dignity to have a grandson who lived as gentleman at large. But now, in the latter days of August, the gentleman found himself, in one most important particular, at large no longer. On returning from Tynmouth to Staple Inn, he entered his rooms with a confused, disagreeable sense that things were not as they had been, that his freedom had suffered a violation, that he could not sit down among his books with the old self-centered ease, that his prospects were completely, indescribably changed, perchance much for the worse. In brief, Tarrant had gone forth a bachelor and came back a married man. Could it be sober fact? Had he in very deed committed so gross an absurdity? He hadn't proposed no such thing. Miss Nancy Lord was not by any means the kind of person that entered his thoughts when they turned to marriage. He regarded her as in every respect his inferior. She belonged to the social rank only just above that of wage-earners. Her father had a small business in Camberwell. She dressed and talked rather above her station, but so, nowadays, did every daughter of petty tradesfolk. From the first he had amused himself with her affectation of intellectual superiority. Miss Lord represented a type— to study her as a sample of the pretentious, half-educated class, was interesting. This sort of girl was turned out in thousands every year, from so-called high schools. If they managed to pass some examination or other, their conceit grew boundless. Craftily, he had tested her knowledge. It seemed all sham. She would marry some hapless clerk and bring him to bankruptcy, by the exigencies of her refinement. So had he thought of Nancy till a few months ago. But in the springtime, when his emotions blossomed with the blossoming year, he met the girl after a long interval, and saw her with changed eyes. She had something more than prettiness. Her looks undeniably improved. It seemed, too, that she bore herself more gracefully, and even talked with at times an approximation to the speech of a lady. These admissions signified much in a man of Tarrant's social prejudice, so strong that it exercised an appreciable effect upon his everyday morals. He began to muse about Miss Lord, and the upshot of his musing was that, having learned of her departure for Tynmouth, he idly betook himself in the same direction. But as for marriage, he would as soon have contemplated taking to wife a barmaid. Between Miss Lord and the young lady who dispenses refreshment, there were distinctions, doubtless, but none of the first importance. Then arose the question, in what spirit, with what purpose, did he seek her intimacy? The answer he simply postponed, and postponed it very late indeed until the choice was no longer between making love and idleness and conscientiously holding aloof, but between acting like a frank blackguard and making the amends of an honest man. The girl's fault, to be sure. He had not credited himself with this power of fascination, and certainly not with the violence of passion which recklessly pursues indulgence. Still, the girl's fault. She had behaved, well— 
as a half-educated girl of her class might be expected to behave. Ignorance she could not plead, that were preposterous. Utter subjugation by first love, that perhaps, she affirmed it, and possibly with truth, a flattering assumption at all events, but, all said and done, the issue had been of her own seeking. Why, then, accuse himself of blackguardly conduct, if he had turned a deaf ear to her pleading? Not one word of marriage had previously escaped his lips, nor anything that could imply a promise. Well, there was the awkward and unaccountable fact that he felt himself obliged to marry her. That, when he seemed to be preparing resistance, downright shame rendered it impossible. Her face, her face when she looked at him and spoke. The truth was that he had not hesitated at all. There was but one course open to him. He gave glances in the other direction. He wished to escape. He reviled himself for his folly. He saw the difficulties and discontents that lay before him, but choice he had none. Love, in that sense of the word which Tarrant respected, could not be said to influence him. He had uttered the word, yes, of course he had uttered it, as a man will who is goaded by his raging blood. But he was as far as ever from loving Nancy Lord. Her beauty and a certain growing charm in her companionship had lured him on. His habitual idleness and the vagueness of his principles made him guilty at last of what a moralist would call very deliberate rascality. He himself was inclined to see his behavior in that light. Yet why had Nancy so smoothed the path of temptation? That her love was love indeed, he might take for granted. To a certain point, it excused her. But she seemed so thoroughly able to protect herself. The time of her green girlhood had so long gone by. For explanation, he must fall back again on the circumstances of her origin and training. Perhaps she illustrated a social peril, the outcome of modern follies. Yes, that was how he would look at it, a result of charlatan education operating upon crude character. Who could say what the girl had been reading, what cheap philosophies had unsettled her mind? Is not a little knowledge a dangerous thing? Thus far had he progressed in the four-and-twenty hours which followed his, or Nancy's, conquest. Meanwhile he had visited the office of the registrar, had made his application for a marriage license, a proceeding which did not tend to soothe him. Later, when he saw Nancy again, he experienced a revival of that humaner mood, which accompanied his pledge to marry her, the mood of regret, but also of tenderness, of compassion. A tenderness that did not go very deep, a half-sliding compassion. His character and the features of the case, at present allowed no more, but he preferred the kindlier attitude. Of course he preferred it. Was he not essentially good-natured? Would he not, at any ordinary season, go out of his way to do a kindness? Did not his soul revolt against every form of injustice? Whom had he ever injured? 
For his humanity, no less than for his urbanity, he claimed a noteworthy distinction among young men of the time. And there lay the pity of it. But for Nancy's self-abandonment, he might have come to love her in good earnest. As it was, the growth of their intimacy had been marked with singular, unanticipated impulses on his side, impulses quite inconsistent with heartless scheming. In the compunctious visitings, which interrupted his love-making at least twice, there was more than a revolt of mere honesty, as he recognized during his brief flight to London. Had she exercised but the common prudence of womanhood? Why, that she did not, might tell both for and against her. Granting that she lacked true dignity, native refinement, might it not have been expected that artfulness would supply their place. Artful fencing would have stamped her of coarse nature. But coarseness she had never betrayed. He had never judged her worse than intellectually shallow. Her self-surrender might, then, indicate a trait worthy of admiration. Her subsequent behavior undeniably pleaded for respect. She acquainted him with the circumstances of her home life, very modestly, perhaps pathetically. He learnt that her father was not ill-to-do, heard of her domestic and social troubles, that her mother had been long dead, things weighing in her favour, to be sure. If only she had loved him less. It was all over. He was married. In acting honourably, it seemed probable that he had spoiled his life. He must be prepared for anything— Nancy said that she should not, could not, tell her father, yet a while. But that resolution was of doubtful stability. For his own part, he thought it clearly advisable that the fact should not become known at Champion Hill. But could he believe Nancy's assurance that Miss Morgan remained in the dark? Upon one catastrophe, others might naturally follow. Here, Saturday at noon, came a letter of Nancy's writing, a long letter, and by no means a bad one, superior, in fact, to anything he thought she could have written. It moved him somewhat, but would have moved him more, had he not been legally bound to the writer. On Sunday she could not come to see him, but on Monday, early in the afternoon. Well, there were consolations. A wise man makes the best of the inevitable. End chapter 2